Awesome. Well, uh, Faith, thank you for leading us in worship. Bryce and Cindy, thanks for welcoming us. And to all of you who are watching with us today, thank you for spending your Saturday morning with us um, as we um, have our worship service here online through Pomerado Christian Church. Um, if you're newer with us and you haven't had a chance to connect, or maybe someone sent you this link just to get uh, an idea about what our church is about, um, welcome, and we honor you. We thank you for joining us here today. My name is JP. I'm the senior pastor here, and it is an absolute honor uh, to be um, the pastor here at our wonderful church. And so we're glad that you're with us this morning. Now, whether you've been with us for a while or whether this is your first time, um, we are going to uh, continue a series through the book of Colossians. And so uh, some of you uh, may or may not be aware that on the top of your page, there's a sermon notes page, as well as some other links in which you can get involved, um, as they mentioned earlier. But uh, I want to just make you aware that if you want to follow along, you can do that. If not, don't worry about it. No one's keeping an eye on you taking notes or not, so, so don't stress. But I'm going to ask uh, that you would join me in a word of prayer as we get ready to uh, dive into uh, the book of Colossians, uh, learning more lessons from house arrest and lessons that, as Paul wrote from house arrest, what might he be able to teach us? What might God be able to teach us through the letter to the Colossians um, as we are, have been in a season for a couple months now almost, or a little over rather, of just navigating, being sheltering in place, quarantined, or, or in some cases it might feel like house arrest. So with that said, will you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and we thank you that you are with us today. I pray that you would um, be with and encourage each and every person who is hearing my voice this morning. Lord, we uh, acknowledge that there is a lot going on in our nation specifically. And so Lord, we um, pray that you would um, help us to know how to be lights for you and how we can just continue to point people to the hope and, and the joy that comes from a right relationship with you, Jesus. And so, Lord, as there may be people who are tuning in and want some answers, God, we turn to you and we turn to your word and pray that as we dive into your word, that I would decrease, that you would increase, that you would speak in a personal, powerful, impactful way to each and every person that is joining us for service today. And um, I pray that all of them, everyone who hears my voice, would know how much you love them. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 11. And uh, the sermon title is just called, What Determines Our Lives? What is it that does that? And as you are turning there um, to Colossians 3, I wanted to share um, uh, that this past week I ended up going um, back on Weight Watchers. And if you've been part of our church for a little bit of time, you've heard me share a little bit about how food can be uh, something I turn to when I'm stressed or uh, just need to relax at the end of the day. I snack in between uh, meals. And so it, it can be difficult. And um, the, the, my history with it is that in 2015, so five years ago, I um, stood on the scale uh, and for the first time I saw a number uh, that was bigger than I ever thought I would see between my own two feet. And um, that catalyzed my journey in order to, or became the catalyst to um, go on Weight Watchers and lost 42 pounds and felt really healthy. And it was really great. But the problem was, is that um, once I kind of reached my goal after a couple months, I just stopped, stopped checking, um, stopped counting the points, stopped tracking my food intake, um, and stopped being as health conscious. And so then here we are five years later, and I didn't quite get to the same level or the same uh, weight that I was before, but I gained you know, the vast majority of it back. And so it's time for me to kind of recalibrate and, and come back to, um, you know, to really tracking those things and uh, being healthy. And 
you know, I remember when I first had this journey that started that five years ago, I had a friend of mine who lost 70 pounds on Weight Watchers and has kept it off still. And he talked about how all of us need to make a choice um, in regards, especially when it comes to weight, but it comes to all of us when it comes to um, various things in our lives. He talked about how there's a cost for everything and, and we have to die to some things in order to take up something else. So if I want to choose to live with eating the kind of foods that I want to eat, even if they're not healthy, eating whenever I want to eat, I can do that, but then that means I'm dying to the life that God may have or dying to a healthier life that would be um, healthier, um, more confidence and, and just feeling better about my long-term health. Whereas I could do that or I could choose to die to eating the foods I want now so that I can take hold of the life that is a healthier, uh, more confident um, and happier life in regards to just feeling um, just like I'm taking care of myself for myself, uh, for my family and also just to honor God. And so uh, that really stuck with me, how there's something that we have to choose to live for, but in order to live for something, we often have to die to something as well. This goes to food, but it may also go to uh, maybe you live for money and you live for possessions and you live for having the nicer things and money in and of itself isn't evil, but the love of money can be a root of all kinds of types of evil. And so we look at how the, the idea that maybe the love of money is so prevalent that you need to die to the love of money of hoarding it and take life of the idea of a generosity, um, a life of generosity and be able to take hold of that. Maybe for you, it's just the idea of um, needing to just get the opinions of others and, and to feel approved of by others. Maybe it's the need to not care about others. And so you push people away rather than welcoming them uh, into your life and you build up walls rather than open up doors. Maybe for some of you, it's just the, the need to die to complacency or laziness or apathy so that you can take hold of being productive or even more so dedicating your time to drawing closer to the Lord and to take, get rid of complacency so you can take hold of a right relationship with God and further discipleship and growing and becoming like Christ. I mean, all of us have to choose to die to something in order to take hold of the life that God would have for us. And so that is very similar to what our main point is today, the idea that our lives are determined by what we live for and what we die to. What we live for and what we die to. It's not an either or, it's a both and. And so we're gonna be in Colossians chapter three, one through 11, as I alluded to. And, and our first point, as we look into the first two verses, um, tells us this, and you can follow along in your notes if you'd like. Where we look determines how we live. Where we look determines how we live. What does the scripture say um, when it comes to this point through Colossians 3? Will you read with me? Verse 1, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. So where we look determines how we live. You know, we see here the, in verse 1 when it says to set your hearts on things above. Uh, I was trying to figure out the difference between set your heart um, and then in verse 2 it says set your mind. So I was trying to, you know, find out the difference there. And I turned to Dan Lewis who's taking uh, Greek classes and, you know, he had shared how the words, or the 
um, verse one, when it says set your heart on things above, verse one, the many translations, the NIV says set your uh, hearts, but many translations just say seek, seek out the things that are above. So in other words, it's where are we looking? What are we searching for? What is our ultimate aim? What is our purpose? What is our vision? Because if we're seeking things here on earth, then we're missing out on the life that we have. So where we look determines how we live. Uh, but my previous senior pastor, Jeff Vines, um, he shared uh, recently in a sermon that if we aim for heaven, we'll get earth along with it. Kind of the idea of Matthew 6, when Jesus says, seek first uh, God's kingdom and righteousness and all these other things will be given unto you. He says, if we aim for heaven, we can get earth along with it. But if we aim for earth, we will get neither. That if we set our vision and seek out the things on earth, we're going to miss out on the life God has for us. But if we seek it on heaven, and on who specifically? Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, the right hand being the hand of power. And we saw in Colossians 1, the supremacy, the majesty, um, the preeminence of Christ and how in him and through him all things remain and are held together in creation. And yet that perfect God became fully man in Jesus. So fully God, fully man came to this earth in order to allow us, so he could live a perfect life and died a horrible death. And then he raised to new life, raised from the dead, so that we too can put off the old self and die to our old ways and take hold of the new life that we are called to in Christ Jesus. And so we want to set our hearts, we want to seek out things that are above, not the things that are below. Because Christ, who is mighty in power and mighty in his love, is seated at the right hand of God. But then verse 2, as we mentioned, alluded to earlier, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. And, and this idea is the idea of a habitual choosing of doing the right thing and habitual, um, habitually setting your mind, your attention on things above, not on things on the earth. That anyone could do something right like the f one time or even by accident, like you stumble into doing the right thing. You know, maybe you um, decided to, uh, you know, you didn't, you didn't, you said, hey, I'm going to go ahead and study for this, this test. It's a big deal. I'll study for it in school. Um, but you don't usually do it and you end up getting a great grade. You're like, awesome, that's awesome. So guess what? I guess I don't need to study because I'm already smart enough to do well, right? No, like we can do the right thing once and then maybe fail to do it again. Maybe for some of you, it's the idea of you can make wise financial choices one time, but your habit, your negative habit is in buying impulsively or, or um, you know, getting so caught up in consumer debt and comparing yourself to what other people have that then you find yourself in debt and un unable to pay things. And, and I know that now's a difficult time to talk about finances in the sense of uh, the job losses and things like that. So I'm not talking about some of these extenuating circumstances when it comes to COVID-19, I'm specifically talking about just making wise financial decisions in what we purchase or maybe more wisely what we choose not to purchase. Maybe for some, it's just you're making the, the make, being able to make the decision, the right decision to, when there's a conflict, go in and find out and hear from the other person. Seek first to understand where they're coming from and then share so you can be understood. See, we can do those one times to do those different things one time and get a great result but what separates people 
who are living um, a godly life and living a life that is um, looked upon as positive by people is that so often there are people who make habits out of doing things that many of us only do once or by accident. That they are habitually setting their mind, their attention on things above, not on things of the earth. So uh, Andy Stanley has talked about it before and we've shared it in multiple sermons, but he talks about the principle of the path that just says direction, not intention, determines our destination. Again, the point behind that is that we may say our intention says I want to drive to Mexico, but if my car is directed towards the north, I will never hit Mexico no matter how long I drive. So it's our direction of our lives, not our intention that determines our destination. And if that is true, then our direction ought to be fixing our eyes, seeking out the things above, not the things on the earth, and then habitually choosing to shape our lives around choosing those things so that we can live the life of someone who is seeking God first and foremost. When I talk about giving up on Weight Watchers years ago, it was because I got out of the habit. When you're in a habit, it's awesome, but when you start to slip, we can either give up or we can say, I messed up, I'm going to get up, and I'm going to try again. And so we want to acknowledge that where we look determines how we live. If we are looking below, we'll live for below and miss it. If we look to the heavens, we may, we'll reach heaven and be able to grab part of her earth with us as well. But that's not the end of this idea of because verses 3 and 4 talk about not just how we need to determine where we look and how that lives, but then we also hit the point that how we live reveals whose we are. How we live doesn't just reveal who we are, it does. We, we can see our habits and how that shapes our personalities and our lives and things like that. But it ultimately reveals whose we are, with whom do we identify and what gives us that identity. Verse 3 says, For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let me repeat that, that idea again, verse th- 4, excuse me. When Christ, who is your life, appears. Not Christ who's a part of your life. Not Christ who you add to your normal schedule of things. Not, not Christ who you talk about every once in a while. Not Christ who you, know, you pray to when things are bad. Don't get me wrong. When things are bad, please pray to God because um, he answers and he hears your cries. But if that's the only time we talk to him, then we can't rightfully say that we truly have a loving relationship that's ongoing, right? So Christ is not just a part of our life. Paul says Christ who is your life. He is the one who gives identity because through Christ and his life, death, and resurrection, we do acknowledge that the old has gone, the new has come. And in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, we are now new creations. It's not that we're the same people just with the different, you know, different outlook on life. We can become brand new people through the regeneration and the new life that God has for us and the power of the Holy Spirit coming inside of us to shape us and to make us more like Christ and less like how we once were. When Christ who is your life, when he appears, then we will also appear with him in glory. And so we see how how we live reveals whose we are. Are we living as those who are Christ followers? Is Christ, would other people in our lives say, you know what, 
I don't, maybe I don't believe it, who Jesus is, but I see this person and, and I could tell he or she loves Jesus and that Jesus is the defining one that shapes this person's life. And it circles back to verse one, since you have been raised with Christ, again, this is who we are. We've died to our old selves, raised with Christ, and now he is our life. And it's a life that is good, not a life that is easy, because Christ's life wasn't easy, but it's a life that even in the brokenness and in the darkness can be redeemed and bring about life and wholeness and bring light to those around us and to ourselves. So we see how where we look, where we focus and put our attention determines how we live and then how we live reveals whose we are. Are you, am I, are we living as those identified with Christ and him alone? But again, our main point today is the idea that our lives are determined by what we live for, which we just took about four verses to talk through and briefly, I mean, there's plenty more. Um, but the rest of our passage goes to our second part of our main point, which is the idea that our lives are determined by what we live for and what we die to. So as we look at this idea, the next part of our point says to walk with God, we must die to, and I'm going to list a few things from this passage. They're not the only things, um, but from these, uh, these final few verses we have here, here are three things that we need to die to in order to truly walk with God as, as we see here. The first one is that we must die to what we keep in. What, is, what, what does that mean? What, are, what does that even look like? Let's, let's read together verses 5 through 7 for a few moments. Verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Some of your versions of the translations of the Bible may say that the wrath of God is coming to sons of disobedience. And then uh, verse 7, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. Again, so we're using the verbiage walk because it ties into here verse 7, that to walk with God, we need to put away the things of how we used to live and to become who God has called us to be when we live. And so well, what does this look like here? What do I mean when I say the things that we keep in? When we look at the list here, so first, put to death. Put to death in verse 5 is strong language. It's the word where we get the idea of uh, mortify. So mortify, mortuary, um, those are all things that kind of talk about our death, right? And so it doesn't say, hey, you know, just kind of try to hide your sexual morality, try to hide your impurity, your, your lusts, your, um, your evil thoughts, your evil desires, excuse me, your greed, which is idolatry. We, we can't just try to hide these things. And Larry Osborne, a pastor over at North Coast, he talks about how there are certain sins and certain struggles that are of the earthly nature that he calls um, shame-based sins, that we have the difference between guilt and shame. So guilt is I did something wrong. I, I broke a vase or I um, hurt someone's feelings, right? Or I stole this. That, that, that's a guilt. We are guilty of that. But there are other things in which it goes beyond guilt. So guilt says, I did something wrong. I did wrong. But then shame, shame has this where it ties so much more closely into our identity. And when we give in or when we succumb to a shame-based sin and we choose to sin in one of these ones, it doesn't just say guilt, I did something wrong. It's shame, which says I am something wrong. It becomes part of our identity. So he says, listen, 
put to death those different things because you've been raised to new life. You're no longer called to live according to the, the shadow of the death that's been around your previous life or these different sins. You're called to put that to death so that when you are raised to life, you are a new creation. And so he talks about how these different sins are ones that are shame-based sins, the ones that we don't want to tell people about, the ones that we hide from even those closest to us. And so how do we put these to death? Because we don't want to experience the wrath of God that is coming by to continue to give in to them. But let me explain for a moment why it is that we are unable to just kind of keep these hidden and why instead we need to actually put them to death. And to do so, I'm going to share an example um, of a story of a woman but um, in, in Putnam, New York. And before I do, I just want to give a quick signal. I'm going to put a picture up in a moment. So if you uh, find yourself to be very similar to Indiana Jones and you just hate snakes, um, I'm going to go ahead and give you permission to uh, you know, turn your attention somewhere else or, you know, I don't know, just don't look for a couple moments because I'm going to show a picture of a snake called the Black Mamba. So Black Mamba, uh, some of you may know that name primarily through uh, Kobe Bryant um, and how that was a, a nickname he had given himself and how uh, people talk about the Mamba mentality of hard work and grinding and, and being dedicated to your craft. But you know, the idea behind a Black Mamba is it's one of the most venomous snakes that there is. And so we, we see this that um, the venom is so strong, um, for example, that if, you, if someone were to get a bite, um, the venom would kill that person within 20 minutes if they don't receive any, um, any medical attention. So the black mom is incredibly dangerous. But I'm bringing it up because again, it goes back to a, um, a story from Alita Stacy is a woman's name that in 2011 from Putnam, New York, uh, she ended up, she had um, her and her boyfriend, uh, they had dozens of different snakes um, and they're all locked away in cages except one day the boyfriend went out and when he returned to the home, he found Alita, Stacy, um, that she had been bitten by, this, by a black mamba, um, and she had died. Uh, and so it's, it was really sad, and it's one of those things where he noticed that the cage of the black mamba was left unlocked. And when a cage animal, like when a black mamba has, is uncaged, or rather the lock isn't there, then a black mamba's gonna do what a black mamba does. A black mamba's gonna get out, and we'll look for um, prey. In this case, it was, it was a woman named Alita Stacy, and uh, he'll attack and he'll bite and ultimately cause death. And it's a sad story. And it's also a sad story when we think that we can just put our shame-based sins, our deepest sins, and we could just put those in a cage. And we could hope that we can lock them, but There'll be times of temptation, there'll be times of struggle, there'll be times of difficulty in which the cage will be left unlocked. And if we keep sin just inside of our lives and we keep it secret and keep it in and not tell anyone, then just like a black mama's gonna do what a black mama's gonna do, our sinful nature, our sin, our fleshly nature inside of us is gonna do what our sinful nature is gonna do. It's gonna come out of its cage, it's gonna find a prey, it's gonna strike, it's ultimately going to lead to a death. It's going to lead to brokenness. And who it may strike may be us, maybe our own sin, and maybe something that affects us, but it also may strike and hurt those whom we love most. And so we can't just try to lock our sin away and keep it alive. We must put it to death. And how do we do that? 
Well, one of the things that we do is just to make sure that we are, um, A, continuing to pray to God about it and asking God to, to either take this away from us, and sometimes he will, and other times, like Paul in 2 Corinthians, Jesus just says, my grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in weakness, and so we have to keep, we'll have that thorn in our flesh still. But if that's you, and you still have that thorn in the flesh, then two, we need to confess it to someone. We need to be able to share with someone. We need to have someone or a few people in our lives with whom we are completely honest. People who can ask us the hardest questions and with whom we will give the honest answers even when they're the hardest answers to admit. We have to be able to get it out of ourselves to not keep it in. We have to die to that shame-based sin to keep it in. And we have to bring it to light and ask for forgiveness and confess those things and then we can experience healing and forgiveness and then decide the, the next day or the next moment to not put ourselves around the things that which tempt us the most. Because if we keep trying to tempt ourselves, the tendency will be that we'll stumble. It's like we're unlocking the cage and hoping maybe it won't get us this time. If we eliminate the things that tempt us, then we're far more likely to be able to fix our eyes, not on the things below that cause us to stumble, our earthly nature, but to seek out God first, to see where we look and how that determines how we live. And how we live will reveal whose we are. Because you are not the same person you were before you came to know Christ. You don't need to go back anymore. Those things that held you back, those struggles, those temptations, those um, things that caused you and those you love's great heartache, they do not define you. You are not theirs. You are Christ's. You are not defined by the old self. You are defined as a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. So we kill that. We put those things to death by sharing it, confessing it, avoiding temptation, and by going to God in the midst of it. But in addition to, in order to walk with God, we must die to what we keep in, we also must die to what we let out. We must, um, excuse me, what we let come out. Excuse me, what we let come out. And this is what verses 8 and 9 say about that. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge and the image of its creator. See, we have to be careful of what we let come out because Jesus talks about how fresh water can't come from a saltwater spring and vice versa. That he, he also says how a good tree cannot bear bad fruit and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. So if what comes out of our lives, our anger, rage, malice, then that is indicative of the fact that maybe we haven't been fully surrendered to God. Maybe we're allowing anger, anger, excuse me, rage and malice to define us more than the fruit of the Spirit, which if we have a right relationship with God, He is working in and through us all the time. The idea of having love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These should be the traits that define us, the fruit of a life that is meant or that is lived for God. Not anger, rage, or malice. Now, to be clear, are there times in which it's okay to be angry? Absolutely. Absolutely. That we see that God was angry in the Bible. We see that Jesus was angry and he threw the table over that was uh, with the people selling goods in the temple. That 
they're sinless. So anger in and of itself is not a sin, which is why Paul in Ephesians says, in your anger, do not sin. He doesn't say don't sin because, or don't anger because it's a sin. He just says, in your anger, it'll happen. We all experience it. Do not sin. So do not let those harsh words come out. Don't let those cutting remarks come out. Don't let um, things that would scare people around us come out. And so we have to be careful of our anger and our rage and our malice. And our, but we also have to be careful of the words we let come out. You know, the, the verse I mentioned earlier about the salt water and the fresh water, that, that's the idea that comes from uh, the words of our mouth. Come out of the words of our mouth come the overflow of the heart. Or out of the overflow of the heart come the words of the mouth, excuse me. But this idea that we cannot slander and tear down one another. We cannot let filthy language um, to, to, to create these cuss words that allow it so that we, you know, we look no different. That with this filthy language we must remove. And then it says, do not lie to one another. That Andy Stanley, who we referred to earlier with the principle of the path, has, he shared with his family when they were growing up that lying um, is one of the worst things you could do because it breaks the relationship. That earlier, even when we confess to those we are close with, we confess these heavy sins that truth, even when it's hard truth, can in time grow a relationship closer. Whereas lying, slowly but surely, one lie at a time, not right away, but one line at a time slowly starts to tear the fabric of a relationship apart. That do not lie to one another. And why is that, as verse 9 says? Because you have taken off the old self. You have no need for those old things like lying and anger and rage and malice and slander or sexual immorality or evil desires or lust or covetousness or greed. Any of these things that are part of our old life, that's how we used to walk. But now we walk differently. We are new creations. And so in order to take hold of the life we're meant to live, we have to put to death the things that are meant to die. And so as we do that, we recognize here that we can't just let those, that anger, with, whether through our actions or through words, we can't let that come out because we've taken off the old self and we've put on the new self. And we're going to talk a lot more next week as we look through verses 12 through 17 about what the new self looks like and how is that embodied in our lives. So, so for our purposes, we wanted to signal that, of course, how, what we live for is a huge part of what determines our lives. But a big part of that, too, is what we die to. And that is what we're focusing on this morning. So as we come near, uh, near the, uh, the final point of our sermon, we need to walk with God. We must die to what we keep in. We must die to what we let come out. And then we must also die to how we see others. And as we're looking at the passage, we look at um, Colossians 3, 1 through 11. You go through and, it, and then all of a sudden verse 11 hits and it feels like it comes out of nowhere. But often when there are times in the Bible or verses in the Bible that feel like they come from out of nowhere, those are often things that we need to spend extra uh, time on and say, why is this here? Why is this in this section? What is God trying to say? Because we believe that God's word is God-breathed, that the Bible is God-breathed, and that um, the Holy Spirit inspired writers um, across hundreds of years and thousands of years to be able to write down God's word, and that God knew exactly what word we needed to hear. And so every word of God in here is God-breathed, and so we want to take an evaluation of verse 11 and says this, Here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, 
but Christ is all and is in all. First question, verse 11, where's the here, right? It says here there is no Gentile or Jew. Well, in the context of Paul, it's talking about here is our new lives. Here is the body of Christ, new be- or believers who have come together and have given their lives to Jesus and have been renewed and are new creations, that here there is no place for these kinds of divisions. And we see um, specifically when it comes to Gentile or Jew, those were, those were racial divisions, that Jewish people were certain people and then the Gentiles were just all the other people. Um, and we see that circumcised or uncircumcised goes to religious backgrounds. That's, you know, were you circumcised? Did you always come to it from um, the people of faith of the Jewish people? Or did you come later? And if you came later, do you need to be circumcised? But Paul talked about earlier in this book how circumcision isn't just something that is an external thing that takes place. It's not just the act of circumcision, but rather true circumcision is when we are circumcised in our hearts and that the the heart of stone that Ezekiel 36 talks about is removed from us and instead it is replaced with the heart of flesh, which is what God promises to us. And so there's no division based off of that. When it comes to barbarian, barbarians were, um, the word barbarian comes from a word in which it's like barbar and it was a way that the Greek people, the Greeks at the time, would make fun of a different people group who they didn't understand how they spoke and so they literally named them after the way that they thought they spoke and making fun of them. So there's the barbarians, those who just say bar, 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 and no one understands them. And then they're ones that are um, said to be, you know, wild and savages and, and uncouth and, and, you know, looked down upon. And then there's specifically the Scythians. The Scythians here are a people group that are even more specifically further away and, and had some pretty heinous acts and, and things that, um, you know, I know most kids are able to watch the Faith Rock thing right now, but I know a few kids watch this too, so uh, I won't share everything that, um, that Scythians did, but if you looked up, you, you'll see a few things that were um, really, really bad and really evil and, and things like that. And so Paul includes them here. And then he even includes Slave or Free to talk about someone's financial socioeconomic status, whether you were poor enough and in enough debt that you had to, um, slaves here would often um, vow to work for someone to work off their debt and be a slave or a bond servant, or you were rich enough or had enough money to be able to be a free person, maybe even one who owned a slave, who knows, but all, Christ is all in, is in all, excuse me. N.T. Wright says it this way, that it is to say in this verse that the differences of background, nationality, color, language, social standing, and so forth, must be regarded as irrelevant to the question of the love honor and respect that are shown to individuals and groups. That with this verse, Paul is explaining to the church of Colossae that here in the new life for Christ and here in the church in the new community of Christ, of God's people, there can be no room for seeing other people as less than you or less than us because Christ is all and he's in all. It paints the picture, the beauty of the church and uh, the global church, of course, but even local churches that have this beautiful multi-ethnic idea that from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, and every people group will be praising God on the throne room um, in heaven in Revelation as we see it. That the same Jesus who's on the throne in verse 1, seated at the right hand of God, that he is going to be worshipped by people from every group regardless of the color of their skin, 
regardless of what country they come from, regardless of their financial status here on earth, regardless of the language that they speak, regardless of their religious background, regardless of all these different things, all people will be worshiping him and giving him praise. And so if God shows us that picture here in the church, it's a beautiful opportunity for us to recognize that there is a unity that we have amidst the diversity of different people. And this is a point that feels very, um, very apt and very difficult for us to digest this week within our um, nation because there's just been so much um, anger and, and um, hurt and wounds and pain and fear and, and just frustration and so much going on. And you know, it was just a little bit ago that we found out the video, or we saw, rather, we saw the video of um, Ahmad Arbery, who was killed in February by um, a couple men in Georgia who, he was African-American and, and they're white and they didn't think that he should be where, they, where he was and he was killed. And even the person who recorded the video was arrested as well. But then specifically this week, we see what happened with George Floyd in Minnesota and how the police officer had the knee right on his neck and he's saying, I can't breathe. And, and he's saying, please, I can't breathe. And other people are watching and filming and watching and saying, you know, he can't breathe, release him and all these different things. And then we see how eventually George Floyd ends up dying that day after six to seven minutes of what's going on and he ends up dying. And there's a lot of outrage and pain and I, and I can't even begin to understand all of it. But what I do understand is the idea that in the kingdom of God, in the new life, in the church, there is no place for division based on how someone looks, where they come from, how much money they have or don't have, their background, or any of those things that Christ is all and is in all. Pastor Miles McPherson, um, he was on an interview um, and on KUSI here in San Diego. Um, and I'd encourage you to type that in and watch. It's about 10, 11 minutes. It's worth your time. Um, and one of the things that he shares is that nobody, nobody wants to be stereotyped. And so that goes for different races. But his, Pastor Miles, his dad was a police officer. His son is a police officer. So even police officers shouldn't be stereotyped. We all don't want to be stereotyped. We want to be seen as individuals. We all want to, don't want to be stereotyped, especially when there are those who would represent the group um, poorly. So Christians, we don't want to be stereotyped by people who just don't preach God's love, but they preach anger and vitriol and hatred that is so contrary to the gospel of Christ and separates people from ever wanting to know Jesus because of how harsh they are and how much they are lacking the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And it's something we don't want to be stereotyped along with them. And so we need to evaluate, are there any areas in which we are stereotyping people based on those who represent them poorly? And so when it comes to um, George Floyd, Pastor Miles also, uh, he wrote a book called The Third Option, which I would encourage you to read. And in there, he has a couple things that I wanna share with you briefly. The first one talks about how the culture plays um, a role in perpetuating, race, perpetuating excuse me, racism and division, quote, by wrongly insisting that there are only two options that you can choose from, 
us or them. He says that culture pits one group of people against one another by promoting a zero-sum game mentality. In other words, this mentality says that you must lose in order for me to win. So then we attack, then we go after, then we demean, then we um, treat people as inhuman. And it's because there's this us versus them mentality. In fact, us versus them is a mentality that we shared about in our runaways, the runaway series through the book of Jonah just a couple months ago. How Jonah was like the people of God, the Israelites are the us. So God, how could you want one of us to go to the them of the Ninevites, the Assyrians, those who are horrible and have overtaken our country? How could you want us to go to them and share the gospel? And he flees. And eventually Nineveh repents and it's Jonah who's the one that misses out on that moment of seeing God's great love and being upset about how much God loves people because he had a mindset in, this, in the story we know of him of us versus them. Well, Pastor Mao says this, that there is a third option. And here's what he says, that God's third option invites us to honor that which we have in common, the presence of his image in every person we meet. When we honor the presence of his image in others, we acknowledge their priceless value as precious and beloved of God. That that is when we are able to see the unity and to honor one another through unity. That there are things that unite us. And this um, pandemic has taught us that no matter where you come from in the world, one thing that unites us is that we need one another. We need community. People, my friends across the world are, are aching for community right now as well. That it teaches us that of all the differences we have, there are many things that unite us. And yet, we live in a culture, in a country, that is very divided. That there's an us versus them when it comes to race relationships. There's an us versus them when it comes to economic understandings of you know, rich people think this or poor people think that and pitting against one another. There's an us versus them mentality when it comes to politics. There are us versus them mentalities that can create division and cre create pain and heartache and cause us to dehumanize someone else when they're part of the them and only want to be okay with the people who are part of the us. Well, Christians, church, we are called not to give in to those divisions, but we are called to bridge the gap. We are not called to stay safe, but we are to go and to be lights in a dark place, whether it's difficult and it's hard and it's not easy. We are called to make a way where there was no way. Why do I know this? Because this is what Jesus did. He recognized that he could have been up there in heaven and he and God and the Holy Spirit are up there in heaven and they could be like, well, we're the us. We're the ones who are perfectly holy and we are sinless. And the people, they are the them and they are separated. And, there's, and there could be a gap there. And there is a gap because of our sin. And yet Jesus took that third option in which he became fully God. Or he, excuse me, he is fully God. He became fully man. And then he came down to earth to make a way there where there was no way, to build a bridge where there was only a chasm, and to be able to make people or allow people to understand how much God truly loves them by honoring and by showing that he loved everyone so much that he would lay down his life for them and he forgave those who murdered him. That he took the third option and he shows us that we all have a priceless value as precious and beloved of God. 
So no matter what someone looks like, as you look, every person you've ever met eyes with is someone that God formed and created and loved, loves. Two, someone that Jesus died for on the cross. And three, that the Holy Spirit wants to draw closer unto God the Father. Everyone has value. So how do we exhibit this third option? How do we go beyond and how do we experience this and how do we show this? Well, part of it is that we may need to put to death some things about our own ways that we see people or our own idea of us versus them and be able to open up that, um, that, being, that seeing things in the third option is the only option we have as Christians. And so verse 10, I want to go to verse 10 because verse 10 kind of paints a little bit of a picture. Just give me a couple more moments. The verse 10 talks about how we've been put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. And the word new and renewed um, have different meanings here. So the word new, putting on the new self is a one-time thing, right? Like we can all do something right one time, but it's putting on something new. We're putting on the new self for the first time. It's a one-time thing. It's an event that happens. But being renewed is something that is a process that keeps happening. So an example is you buy a, you buy a new shirt and you bought a shirt once and you put it on for the first time one time. But it's being renewed because when it gets dirty, after you wear it, you wash it, it gets clean, and then you put it on again later on. That in our walk with God, there's the idea of the the one-time change, the new self is an, an act of salvation. It's when we, and justification, when our sins have been justified, when we confess that Jesus is our Lord and we believe in our hearts that he is Lord and then we are saved. That is justification. And then this process of being renewed is this idea of sanctification. It's this idea of being constantly made more and more like Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then after justification, which is a one-time event, sanctification, which is throughout our entire lives to become more like Christ, if we continue to live for him and if Christ is our life, then like verse four says, we go all the way to the top of verse four, that then he, when, we, when he is our life, we will appear with him in glory. And that third stage, justification, sanctification, and then glorification, that happens not here on earth, but when we leave this place and we close our eyes here on earth for the last time, and then we open our eyes in heaven and see Jesus face to face and experience his glory, which is far beyond anything we could imagine. And so the questions we need to ask ourselves are things like, what are you looking at? What am I looking at? What are we looking at that determines our direction? Are we aiming for earth? Are we aiming for heaven and fixing our eyes, seeking out heaven and habitually making the choice to pursue a life for the things above for heaven? What, are, what must be put to death in our lives? What are those things that you've kept in that you can't keep in anymore? You have to put them to death by letting them be known to trusted people who can come alongside you and confess them to God and eliminating temptation. What are the things that have been the anger and the malice or the words? How do we need to evaluate what we let come out? And then who are people that we might be seeing in a way that isn't the way that God wants them to be seen and the way that God created them to be seen? And one of the best ways to do that last part is when we're able to have people over again um, to our homes is to invite someone who doesn't look like you to dinner, hear their story, get to know them, spend time with them, build relationships with them. Maybe invite someone who isn't in the same you know, economic class as you 
or, or, you know, Jesus talks about if we only invite people to dinner as guests who can repay us, then our repayment will come here on earth. But if we welcome in poor, if we welcome in people who are different than us, then we're able to experience um, the blessing of, of, of that instead. So maybe you invite them into your home. Maybe you go to where people are that are different than you and you go to downtown San Diego and you break bread with people and you meet people um, who are homeless or who are struggling. And then maybe you invite someone over to your home that doesn't believe the things that you do, that we do. And in so doing, you find out about them and their story. And allows us to be a way maker. It allows us to be people who are bridging gaps. It allows us to be like Christ, to honor people though they are different from us. And to find that which unites us as people who need Jesus, no matter what we look like. It allows us to see the honor in that in one another and the honor that knowing that Jesus died for each and every one of us. Not for the people we think he should have died for. He died for us all. And so as we now take an opportunity to take our communion, we are reminded that the old is gone and the new has come. And um, there's a story, or not a story, there's something I want to share about butterflies just to close us really quickly. That this word, uh, you know, butterfly um, starts off as an egg, becomes a caterpillar. Then it goes into a chrysalis, not a cocoon, found this out this week. Um, and then the adult emerges and then the adult butterfly um, flies away. And inside the chrysalis, something amazing happens, metamorphosis. Metamorphosis is the, is the Greek word for transformation. And we see it, how we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. We see it in the Bible about when it, we are, the old is gone and the new has come, that we are new creations. There's been a metamorphosis that caterpillars, as I was reading, in the chrysalis, they kind of dissolve and, and then... Um, they die, uh, or they experience a death-like sleep or death, and then they come back brand new. They're, that butterflies aren't just caterpillars with wings. They're new creations. And the same metamorphosis is what happens inside our lives when the old has gone, when we put the old self behind us, we put away and put to death these things that used to define us, and now we walk in new life because our identity is in who Jesus is, not in who we used to be. It's in what he's done for us, not what we had done in our past. It's the fact that he loves us so much that he lived a perfect life. He died a horrible death. He was raised back to life and he invites me, he invites you, he invites everyone in the world to be able to experience eternal life by confessing their need for him and by surrendering their lives to him. So as we sang about surrender earlier, communion is an opportunity for us to surrender and confess to remember and profess our love for him because he first loved us. Will you join me as we pray and as we take our communion in just a moment? Father, we thank you for this day and we thank you for this message, uh, this word rather, that you have um, through Colossians chapter three. I pray, Lord, that, um, that you were able to speak and that I was able to decrease, that you were able to increase and that you were working in a personal, powerful, impactful way. And Jesus, we thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. That You died on the cross for everyone, no matter how they looked, no matter what we've done. What matters most is what you have done for us on the cross. So we take the bread, Jesus, that reminds us of your body that was broken for all the sins we've committed that we've done wrong. And then we also take the cup that reminds us of uh, your blood that was poured out in forgiveness of all the sins that we've 
done or the sins that we've omitted, that we haven't done, that we should have. And we surrender all to you. Help us to be sanctified and become more like you, Jesus. And we remember your sacrifice now. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Please feel free to partake of the elements as you feel led. Thank you all so much again for coming and joining us today online. And if you would like to ask for prayer, um, we have the live prayer button. Um, you can also uh, go to palmerado.com prayer and fill out a form there if you would like. Um, know that you are. You are prayed for, cared for, and loved. And we're here if you need to talk or you need prayer. And we close with saying, may the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you. And may he grant you his peace. God bless you all. We love you. Thank you for coming, and we'll see you next Sunday morning.